Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. So, Rory, before we kick off, we've got some very exciting live show news. Now, listeners may have heard a few whispers around this, but we can officially announce The Rest is Politics will be going on a UK tour this October, whatever the timing of the election. Indeed, we will, Alistair. With live shows in six cities, no less, including our first visit to Wales, we'll be on stage in Brighton, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, Cardiff and London. So there'll be more information on the tour dates in our newsletter that goes out on Friday. You can sign up to that by going to our Twitter feed if you haven't already. Tickets, I suspect, will sell very quickly. So we've given members of The Rest is Politics Plus a 48-hour pre-sale period, which kicks off on Wednesday, Valentine's Day, the 14th of Feb, hopefully to ensure as many of you can get tickets before the general sale, which begins on Friday the 16th. And for those of you who aren't Trip Plus members, you can sign up by going to therestispolitics.com for just £3.49 a month. There'll be more info to come in next week's podcast. Any questions in the meantime, email restispolitics at gmail.com. Right then, let's get on with today's show. And Alistair, you wanted to start us with Northern Ireland, is that right? I think we should definitely talk about Northern Ireland. I also want to talk about Rishi Sunak's bizarre interview with Piers Morgan. And then I think we should have a very kind of foreign policy second half. Two important elections, one that is happening and one that's not. Uh, We're talking there about El Salvador, where it has happened, and Senegal, where it's not. And then I think we're both quite interested in having a bit of a deep dive on North Korea. But Rory, I think in common with virtually every media outlet, certainly in the UK and many around the world, we should probably begin with a brief word on your friend King Charles, who, having been in for his enlarged prostate, the palace have now announced that he has he has cancer. So what was your reaction on hearing that? Well, I mean, obviously very sad. I mean, he's, he's somebody I um, uh, admire enormously and, and like very much. So I think anybody who has... Um, somebody you're close to diagnosed with cancer, I think it's it's very worrying. And of course, I, I don't know any more than anyone else um, mm. the details of it, how dangerous it'll be. Um, initially, I think like others, I, I thought maybe it was prostate cancer, which often treatment rates are quite positive, but it seems it's not prostate cancer. Um, mm. So my thoughts very much with them, and I'm very worried. Mm. I am... Um... I mean, I know, like you, I know nothing more than has been announced by the palace, but I wonder if when he went in for the checks on the prostate, he had a, a sort of full body scan or some such, and they've they found something else. I do think, we said this a couple of weeks ago, I do think his, um, the openness about the visit to have the prostate checked had a pretty remarkable effect in terms of men getting checked out. And likewise, it's interesting how many of the cancer charities today are saying that the fact of him saying, presumably within days of him being told this news, sharing that with the public, that that will perhaps help other people who are, who are going through the same thing. Yeah, I, th- I think, it, I mean, as you said, it, it, it has an electric effect on all of us, doesn't it? When suddenly we're reminded of how vulnerable we all are. Mm. Um, I think he's also, I mean, I, it, it's been an incredibly proud moment for, for me and for many other people who support him to see how very, very well he has taken on this role as the king. He had an incredibly high bar to live up to. And actually, I think it's been a real success in the last year and a half. He's barely put a foot wrong. And it's really sad that when he's firing on all cylinders, he should be hit by something like this. Also, I was trying to think this morning, which other person in the world who the announcement of an illness would attract so many comments from other world leaders. I mean, both Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, Donald Trump's admittedly talking more about himself than it did about Charles. You know, we've talked a lot when the Queen was alive about the soft power that they will, but that is part of that soft power in a way, isn't it? That the, the mere fact of a very short announcement from Buckingham Palace and you have leaders around the world feeling they must say something. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and I think the other thing we talked about is a really interesting example of his role was at the COP climate conference that 
he was able to give this huge keynote opening address, which I don't think probably would have been given to a, a normal political leader in a country. So I, I think it's, um, I mean, it's very, very worrying. Um, mm. But it's also, I think, a reminder of the fact that there is still affection, respect, which, of course, makes me very um, happy. Well, I do know from sources close to the king, which are not you, Rory, that he, I don't know whether he does every week, but I know he has certainly been a listener to the podcast at times. If he is listening, then we both, on behalf, I'm sure, of all of our listeners in all parts of the world, wish him the very, very best. And if we can switch to Northern Ireland, I thought it was in, this is this was interesting and fitting of what's been happening in Northern Ireland in recent days. One of the first voices to come out and wish him well was none other than the new First Minister of Northern Ireland, uh, Michelle O'Neill, which when you think of her history, dad, an IRA prisoner at one point in his life, very much um, the first Republican First Minister to be elected and serving in Northern Ireland. And yet there she was straight out of the traps, giving him her best wishes. So I thought that was a kind of quite interesting and symbolic moment. Yeah. Obviously, Northern Ireland is something you've been very deeply involved in, care about a lot. Um, we were together in, in Belfast for the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement last year. Um, what's your sense on what's been going on? Because obviously, we've been very, very worried about the lack of of government in Northern Ireland and about all the troubles that came with that. And it was beginning to look pretty gloomy towards the end of mm. last year about whether anybody would ever come together at all, whether in particular um, the DUP would feel that they had any real incentive to sign up to the government. And now it's happened. Talk, talk us through a little bit about why it wasn't working last year and why you think it's finally now come through. Well, I, d I do think it's it's um, we should kind of thank and pay tribute to an awful lot of people who haven't given up on it and who have been working incredibly hard. You mentioned the 25th anniversary that we were both at in in Belfast, and you know, Bill Clinton was there, Hillary Clinton was there, George Mitchell, Tony Blair, Bertie Ahern, all, Jerry Adams, all the people from the the time of the Good Friday Agreement. It did feel a little bit vulnerable then, and I remember talking to Chris Eaton Harris, who's the current Northern Ireland Secretary, and I was very gloomy. I felt. You know, and, and, I, and I did worry. I did worry that the government didn't have the kind of energy and the and the will and the drive to kind of keep going. But he has. I mean, to be fair to the guy, he really has. And I'll tell you something else is very interesting. Talking to people who've worked on this, Chris Eaton Harris definitely has been working pretty much flat out. Uh, number ten, I've got this guy Paul Bew, who you probably know, who's a peer from Northern Ireland, very much in I think in the kind of David Trimble tradition in terms of politics, but very, very kind of expert. I think he's been playing a pretty important negotiation role. But the other thing they did was that, if you remember Julian Smith, who was Secretary of State under Boris Johnson, and then he was fired by Boris Johnson in one of his ridiculous reshuffles. Or, or actually, I think to be fair to Julian, it was somewhere between firing and resigning, I think. And Julian then became very, very unhappy with the way that Boris Johnson was handling yeah. Northern Ireland, didn't he? Yeah. But people in Northern Ireland at the time that I talked to felt that it was a really bad move to get rid of him because he'd been central to getting the institutions up and running during one of the previous very long uh, periods of suspension. And interestingly, Rishi Sunak and Chris Heaton harris have sort of kept him on in a, in a kind of advisory capacity. And some of the people I've been talking to say that actually a lot of the cajoling has been coming from Julian Smith, uh, that he's been centrally involved. And the other thing they say, which I think is, again, testimony, when people say, why can't politicians all work together and just get out and sort problems? The other thing that people in the government are saying is that actually if Hillary Benn, who's Labour's Northern Ireland spokesperson has been very much batting on the same track as well. And then I think the other thing that's happened is that Jeffrey Donaldson, the leader of the DUP, who in previous incarnations has been a very, very, very difficult customer. I can remember David Trimble used to get infuriated by him. I saw an incredible interview on Channel 4 News with David Trimble's widow recently, really critical of Jeffrey Donaldson, felt that he was always, you know, ready to stab people in the back and pursue his own objectives. But he now has made himself into the person that is being targeted by the, the kind of ultra unionists. But I think what's happened is if you go, you know, go back to Brexit, since Brexit, and particularly with Johnson's promise that there would be no border down the Irish Sea or on the island of Ireland, this issue of the fact that Northern Ireland has the only land border 
with the European Union on the island of Ireland means that there has been this very, very difficult issue of how do you resolve all the trading arrangements. And it's been a running sore. So we had the Northern Ireland Protocol, we had the Windsor Framework. We then had this command paper, which did have some pretty, I wouldn't say they were the kind of significant changes. There was quite a lot of ambiguity surrounding them. But they were enough for Jeffrey Donaldson then to be able to go out and say to his supporters, look, we have managed to get change. We have managed now to make the checks much less cumbersome, much less obtrusive, virtually invisible in points. And so that has sort of managed to change the mood. And then I think the rest of it has just been a case of them all deciding to kind of, you know, to jump at the same time. I mean, given that we're often pretty gloomy on the podcast, this is quite a cheery story because it seems to be a story where politicians who might have political incentives in Northern Ireland not to compromise because they will have uh, core voters who really aren't going to reward them for compromise mm. have compromised. It's a story where a government which, as you say, often with things like the Rwanda boats is playing very strange publicity-seeking politics and not really getting anywhere, has actually shown in Northern Ireland a little bit of focus and diligence. It, yeah. it hasn't been defined by all the kind of crazy reshuffles and that we've seen in so much of British politics. I'm glad that you raised Julian Smith. I mean, he's somebody who joined Parliament with me in 2010. I really like him. He's a very kind of thoughtful, intelligent force. Um, he was under a lot of pressure as chief whip because he was trying to get Theresa May's Brexit deal through. So I worked mm. with him very closely on a soft Brexit. Got himself in trouble, I think, with Boris Johnson because he called a no-deal Brexit a very, very bad idea for Northern Ireland. Yeah, which of course it was and is. Um, so I think that that is a good story. And it may be that interesting because I, I mean, we don't always agree about this, but I, I think we it's increasingly obvious to me that Rishi Sunak is not going to be prime minister after the next election. So when one looks back at his legacy and what he's done, the two things probably that you'd put on the positive side are, obviously, I think that the work that he did around AI and maybe some of this work around Northern Ireland, implying that he's done well on some of the more technocratic, geeky stuff, but just hasn't managed to really work out how to do the big, mm. the big politics. I thought it was sensible of him to go um, and meet Michelle O'Neill and also the Deputy First Minister, Emma Little-Pingeli. I thought that was sensible to go there and kind of cement the whole thing. But he was also right to say that the the, the hard work starts now because, of course, I don't know if you were you you were able to see any of the the debate on Saturday when the, the when Stormont uh, reassembled, but it was actually quite moving. It was um, you know Michelle O'Neill and as as one of the other speakers said, you know when the institution was established uh, back in the day, um, people like Michelle O'Neill were not meant to be in charge of it. Just explain to international listeners a bit about that. The assumption was that the first minister would come from the the unionist Protestant loyalist side. Is that right? Well, I, I'm actually going back to when Stormont was first established as very much in the kind of unionist mould. But yes, absolutely, I, th I think that what's happened has been this change. So every first minister up to now has come from the unionist side because the first minister, um, the party that gets the most seats in the assembly, not necessarily a majority, but gets the most seats, gets the choice of the first minister. He or she has equal status with the deputy first minister. But we all know in practice that if you are called the first minister, <laughs> that is going to give you a sense of status. Added to which Emma Little-Pengeli, who's a former MP in the UK parliament, she's not actually elected yet. So that adds, I think, to the authority that Michelle O'Neill has. But it was a speech. She has this, she's obviously decided that her her kind of slogan, her trademark, she talks about being a first minister for all. I mean, for example, she actually used the phrase Northern Ireland. Now, most Republicans usually talk about the North of Ireland rather than Northern Ireland. She talked about respecting the traditions and history. And likewise, Emma Little-Pengeli, when she spoke, and by the way, her background, her father was also, he was involved, he was once convicted in a gun running plot, but she was, she was very open to the other side as well. Just on that for a second. So Emma Little-Pengeli was in Parliament with me. And as you say, it's extraordinary. So they're both younger women. They both come from absolutely the sort of core tradition of their parties with links to people who were in the armed struggle. So as you say, Michelle O'Neill's father, Brendan Doris, was in a, the provisional IRA, put in prison. Her cousin was killed in an SAS ambush in the early 90s. Emma Little-Pengeli's father, Noel Little, was in the Ulster resistance and was arrested for selling missile plans to the South Africans in return for weapons. 
Um, so they've both come from these families with fathers very much involved on either side in in in, in terrorism. Yeah, and who were prosecuted for those things and imprisoned for those things, and they have that in their blood. I mean, I think nobody questions that kind of family story, and yet it's very remarkable to have these two younger, very articulate women now signaling something that that feels a bit more moderate. Maybe I'm being am I being too naive here? Is there more to it than? than no, that? I don't. I don't think you. Are. Well, put it this way: I think they were definitely trying to project. Uh, a, a very inclusive approach, but now the hard work starts because they've had, you know, public. Well, they've got public sector strikes, which, are, by the way, I think were a factor in pushing them on this. They've got real difficulties in the public services. They've got a civil service machine that has been trying to keep the whole show on the road and has now got to be kind of you know lifted to go again. And they're going to have to work together and make some very very difficult choices together. And meanwhile, I think what is a fascinating element of this. Um, Mary Lee MacDonald, who is the essentially the leader of the party across Ireland, as it were, and who's the leader in, in of the opposition in the Doyle, and who is current favourite to be the next Taoiseach of Ireland. So you'd have a Sinn Féin woman in charge in Northern Ireland and in the Republic. I, I think she went a bit off message when she talked about a United Ireland being within touching distance, because that wasn't the mood that Michelle O'Neill, I don't think, was trying to project. And I think the challenge she has now, clearly she's a Republican, she believes in a united Ireland. The question is whether showing herself to be competent, if she is, in running the affairs of Northern Ireland, whether that makes people feel in Northern Ireland more comfortable with being in Northern Ireland, or whether it actually says to people, oh, well, maybe these guys can be given a shot right across the island of Ireland. I think that's going to be very interesting. So encourage listeners to listen to our interview on leading with Humsa Yusuf, the SNP leader and first minister in Scotland. And there is an analogy there, isn't it? She'll be looking at the SNP and looking at the way in which nationalists in that case, who believed in independence in the United Kingdom, took over administration and tried to perform credibly there. I mean, one of the big challenges, as you said, is not just public services, but health in particular. The, um, mm. the number of patients being seen within four hours in the Northern Ireland health service is 43% compared to 71% in England. Now, we think the NHS uh, in England, Scotland, and Wales has some terrible problems, but it's much, much worse in Northern yeah, Ireland. Absolutely. And, and, and given that you're looking at a pretty, what feels to us like a pretty low bar here, one in 10 are waiting more than a year for a first outpatient appointment. Um, 170,000 public sector servants on strike, which is the worst, I think, since the 1970s. Teachers on starting salaries, £7,000 less than in England. Um, but on the upside, of course, the fact that Northern Ireland is structurally positioned quite well to benefit from mm. Brexit because it remains part of the, effectively part of the single market and customs union with Europe while also um, being part of the United Kingdom. So it's a time of, could be a time of great opportunity, actually, yeah. for this new leadership. Just to give you a, a flavour of some of the language that was used at the weekend. So Michelle O'Neill, this is Michelle O'Neill, as we say, daughter of an IRA guy. This place we call home, this place we love, North of Ireland or Northern Ireland, where you can be British, Irish, both or none, is a changing portrait. To all of you who are British and Unionist, your national identity, culture, and traditions are important to me. I will be both inclusive and respectful. Our allegiances are equally legitimate. Let's walk this two-way street and meet one another halfway. And then Emma Little Pengelly, she talked about being witness to a, an IRA bomb, but then she said, the past with all its horror can never be forgotten, and nor will it be allowed to be rewritten. But while we are shaped by the past, we are not defined by it. And I just thought that was... The, the, these felt like speeches that you wouldn't have heard even you know a few years ago from from these people. So I thought that was that was pretty moving actually. Your point about the union as well. The, the the government is obviously very sensitive about this because in fact the document that enshrines the deal that they've done is actually called safeguarding the union. If you read it, the cover is all sort of red, white, and blue. So, but I I, I think this was uh, this was a very 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 good weekend. Uh, for Northern Ireland. And given that Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom, it means it's a very good weekend for the UK. Very good. Well, thank you. And thank you, Asta, for being gracious and um, uh, <laughs> so positive about all the work that everybody's been doing. So shall we now talk about Rishi Sunak and Piers Morgan interview? Exactly. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now you can put the boot in. With, uh, tell us a bit about this interview, which I only seen the clips on social media. Oh, I mean, it was just a, 
from I don't know why he does this. Why? T- tell us firstly, um, what was the interview for? Was this Piers Morgan's own TV station, which has very few subscribers? What was it all happening for? Well, it's Talk TV, yeah. which is Piers Morgan when he, he lost his birth at Good Morning Britain and he, and he yeah. reappeared at Talk TV. And essentially, Talk TV, like GB News, it d- they don't have many actual people sitting down and watching it. So Piers very much sees his job as trying to get noticed in other ways, particularly by making news. And if I was briefing Rishi Sunak, first I would say, look, there's no point doing Piers Morgan because there are not many people watch it. And the only way it gets noticed is if you, if he turns it into a cock up for you. So let's park it. Just context on that. I mean, as far as I can tell, Talk TV boasts of having 30,000 viewers. I mean, to, to put that in context, I mean, that's a very, very small fraction of the number of people who listen to this podcast. Um, so so 30,000 viewers. So the first thing you'd say is there's not much upside. If you get it right, 30,000 people watch you. And if you get it wrong, they put clips on social media and millions watch it. Is that right? Well, they would. If you got it right, they it would still get noticed. It would still get watched by the rest of the media. You would get coverage for it. So let's say you'd gone on and simply said... Um, I'm really, really happy that the Northern Ireland deal has worked out. It would have been clipped, but not that many people would have seen it because people know that story. So it's going to get noticed if he says something new and controversial or, frankly, if he makes the balls up. And Piers Morgan is very, very good at getting himself noticed. And he actually got three, I think he got three, rather startling passages in this interview. Like you, I haven't seen the whole interview. I've seen the stuff that's been on the news. The first one and the most sort of dramatic, which actually led the BBC News um, immediately after the interview, was where they were talking about Rwanda and Piers Morgan said, I'll bet you a thousand quid that you won't get any refugees on a plane before the election. Now, anybody who has ever been a politician for more than five minutes would have thought, ooh, betting about putting some of the poorest, most miserable people on earth on a plane and flying them off. I don't think I should go down that path. And therefore, you would have said, Piers, I think this is a really serious policy. Uh, agenda that we're pursuing, I don't think we should belittle it by talking about betting. Just thinking about the different responses that you might have made. I mean, I think if you were Macron, you might have gone even sort of grimmer, wouldn't you? If you were Macron, you would have said, this yeah. is actually insulting. This isn't, I mean, who do you think I am? I'm the yeah. Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Absolutely. Making bets with a television presenter. Can we get back to the issue? Yeah. Exactly. And, and instead of which, Piers Morgan pressed him, you know, he kept just sitting there going, thousand pounds, thousand pounds. And eventually, I don't know how the handshake was done, but they shook hands on it. Now, number 10 are now saying he didn't realise he was making a bet. That's ridiculous because it clearly looks like he's taking the bet, doesn't he? I've seen that clip. Of course he is. And then to make it worse, to make it worse, he's out this morning, out and about doing one of his cheery chappy doorsteps. And he says, quotes, I'm not a betting man. He then goes... I mean, for God's sake, Rishi Sunak, just do the job of being prime minister. He goes to do Test Match Special. And on Test Match Special, he talked, which is a cricket program, Rory, he talks about when he was a trader in the city, sitting there with his hedge fund numbers moving up and down on one laptop, while on the other laptop, he was spread betting on cricket. Yeah. So exposing himself as having been untruthful about that. It's not a good thing. But just for, I I was thinking about putting myself in his shoes in that. And I think the skill of a very experienced politician is to be able to work out how to take a breath. You're not expecting Piers Morgan to say, go on, thousand pounds, thousand pounds, thousand pounds. So in the instant, you'll be a bit panicked and thrown off balance. And it's just somehow taking that half a second to gather yourself, work out you're not going to do it and how you're going to come back confidently. Piers is sort of slightly, my sense in that interview is he's slightly kind of bullying him he's sort of coming over as this kind of big guy, kind of pushing him and pushing him, trying to make him look ridiculous. And the question is, how do you, as a prime minister, avoid that? Were there clips with Tony Blair where people put him under really awkward pressure and there were moments where you thought watching it, gosh, it's going to be difficult. And then he came through. Any glimpses of things where people did weird things in interviews? (laughs) There was the time when David Frost, who was a brilliant interviewer, but David Frost just sort of did one of his long pauses and you thought you're going to get one of his long questions with lots of different sub clauses and so forth. And he just sort of, he just said, prime minister, do you and president Bush pray together? (laughs) Right. And and Tony just sort of, he just looked very, very startled and he recovered. It was fine. I'll tell you what Tony Blair would have said with with that Piers Morgan thing. He just said, Oh, Piers, for heaven's sake, I'm not going to bet with you about anything, let alone something as serious as this. Right. 
and he'd have moved on. And then Piers, Piers would have looked ridiculous saying, well, I think you should take a bet. It shows you don't believe in the policy. But he wouldn't. But anyway, so that was one thing, Roy. The second yeah. thing, the second thing is that he said to him, he basically gave him what we call in the trade a full toss outside the, or a half volley outside the off stump, where he basically was asking him to, getting him to criticize Keir Starmer as a lawyer for having defended uh, people who were involved in an organization which is now prescribed as a terrorist organization. Right. Now, I actually think that what Rishi Sunak should have done was to do what John McCain did. You remember that famous time when John McCain, a woman said to John McCain, I don't trust Barack Obama. He's not even an American. He's Arab. And John McCain said, no, I'm not having that. Barack Obama is a good American. He's a family man. He believes what he believes very strongly. It's just that he and I have different views. That's, I think, what Sunak should have said. He should have said, look, Keir Starmer was a lawyer. He was entitled to take up the cases that he did. That is very different to being a politician. And I don't think we should play that game. Instead of which, he played the game. And I think that, I think his problem Rishi Sunak, when he's doing these interviews, he's always he's trying to please all the time. He's trying to he's thinking, what do they want out of this interview? Whereas actually, what he should be thinking is, what do I want out of this interview? And then the third thing that um, that made news was where he admitted that he'd failed on his pledge on the National Health Service, which obviously is very very significant. So all round, it was a total car crash, I would say. <laughs> Just to finish the first half. Um, uh, so good news out of Northern Ireland, and some of that credit to Rishi Sunak, who, who stuck with it and kept the team together and made that happen. But at the same time, a reminder of one of the things that is leading up to his loss in the election, and one of those is exemplified in that, I guess, is not quite managing to get the, the tone right, not quite managing to come across as the kind of serious person with a plan and a bad misjudgment. And I guess one of the questions that you might ask is if you were the communications director and you knew that that you knew what Rishi Sunak's strengths and weaknesses were, you probably would advise him not to do the interview in the first place, right? I think so. I think so. And I think he's doing too much of this stuff. He's out and about every day. And I think the trouble is deep down, I think people sense he's trying to be something that he's not. Um, and, and we go back to the point we've made endlessly on this podcast is that it's, it's going against the change that he promised to be. You could imagine Boris Johnson doing that bet. You could imagine Liz Truss sort of, you know, ballsing up an interview. But if he's meant to be Mr. Integrity, Mr. Professional, Mr. Accountable, Mr. Honest and Straightforward, don't do that stuff and, and stop being a kind of showbiz prime minister. Because I think that's the stuff that people are absolutely sick of. Yeah. And of course, if, if Boris Johnson had taken the bet, it would have felt very different, wouldn't it? And also, you, you can guarantee that he would never have paid it had he lost as it, well. Absolutely. <laughs> but he also would have sort of turned it into a joke. And yeah. sort of, I mean, it would have been a very different thing. Okay. Well, thank you. Now, we've got some very serious stuff to get on with when we come back from the break. We have indeed. Senegal, uh, El Salvador and North Korea. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. So we, we've often talked about this, as everybody does, I think, increasingly, as a year of elections. And there have been two very interesting events around elections. So on Sunday, there were the elections in El Salvador. And then there were supposed to be elections just coming up in Senegal, although the president has now announced that he's delaying those elections. So let's just get, get into those Two things quickly. Um, El Salvador, again, for, for listeners who aren't maybe concentrating all the time on these kind of things, El Salvador is a country about the size of Wales, population about six and a half million people on that isthmus of Central America that connects uh, North America to South America. And it sits there in a group of countries along with Guatemala and Nicaragua and Honduras. 
it's gone through very, very difficult times. I mean, huge range of coups, counter coups, putches through the early 20th century, and then found itself caught up in the horrors of the Cold War, in particular standoffs between leftist guerrillas and rightist forces right the way through the 1980s. And you know, the, the parallel, I guess, maybe for listeners that they might remember is the Contra-Sandinista struggles in Nicaragua, which had some echoes with that. That ended in the early 90s, but it then inherited a horrendous crime rate. So Shoshana, my wife, who lived in, in Honduras and traveled to El Salvador back in the day, if you spoke to her about her basic memory of it, her number one defining thing is, is crime. It was just so much homicide, so much kidnapping, these horrifying criminal groups. From the 90s onwards, it had a governments which were um, actually from pretty much from the far right and the far left in some ways, had an interesting domination of some very, very powerful Palestinian political leaders, including one of the presidents, one of the opposition leaders, and most recently now, the current president, who also comes from a, a Palestinian Arab background. And on that, I'm going to hand over to you about the current president and what's going on. Well, his name is Naib Bukele. Um, we used to enjoy the, the label Cool Britannia. He enjoys going by the moniker of the Cool Dictator. He's in his early 40s. He has had a fairly colourful past. Even in becoming the second-term president, he has kind of <laughs> defied all odds and ripped up the constitution or got the constitution changed, partly because of that historical troubles that you talked about. The rule was one term only for the president. He got the constitution changed. He's now into his second term. And we're recording this on Tuesday. By the time this is out, we may know the, f the full score, not just of his presidential election, where he has won with the biggest majority ever and taken more than eight out of 10 of every vote. Um, but it's possible he will have almost total control of the Legislative Assembly as well. And he has done it in large part by openly, avowedly saying that his prime job has been to put an end to this uh, dominance of the gang warfare within El, El Salvadorian life and culture. It's now estimated that one in 45, one out of every 45 adult males is now in prison. We should maybe put in, in the newsletter, for those who haven't seen it, some of the film footage of the prisons um, where you see just endless rows of young men, mostly covered in, in tattoos, crouched down, shaven-headed, feet clamped, hands clamped together, being marched around by guys with kind of, you know, their faces covered. And the message is very, very clear. And he, he put out a video of some of the most brutal sort of pictures of these inside these prisons and said, every parent should watch this and understand that if their sons go down this road, they end up either dead or in prison. And it's made him hugely popular. There has been an opposition on human rights grounds. But his answer to that has been every time the international community, every time the international courts, every time people try and told us what to do and came in with their fancy liberal ideas, none of it worked. This is working. Bugger off. That's his basic message. Yeah. And, um, and, and it's, it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Because we, we've actually had similar conversations around many issues. Um, in this case, I guess if you were one of his supporters from El Salvador, you would say it's all very well for people like you and me, or yeah. President Biden, incidentally, who refused to meet him, yeah. both because of the human rights abuses and corruption to sit and say how terrible he is. But we didn't experience the violence and the homicide and the kidnapping and the horror, and that El Salvador has basically been ruined for nearly 30 years by violence, which is beyond imagining. I mean, the homicide rate, I think, something like 50 times higher than in Britain or a normal Western European country. And he's reduced the homicide rate by 70% through these extraordinary measures. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because of course, with a smaller country like that, sometimes these sort of autocratic rulers can turn things around. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with the economy, but people who support this kind of authoritarianism will say that we're being naive and they will point to places like Singapore, which of course were turned around by pretty authoritarian methods, and many other countries in Latin America, particularly Central America, are looking 
to what's happened there and wondering whether there's a playbook that they can follow. There's no doubt about that at all. And, and as you say, it is a relatively small country, but in that region and in other parts of the world, people will be watching. And we've talked endlessly about how this sort of dividing line between, well, is democracy all it's cracked up to be against, you know, watch these authoritarians sort things out. So actually you can see this guy building a profile with the hard right in across Europe and so forth. And that's part of what he's doing. And, he, you know, he's done he's done some of the things that the, the kind of extreme populists always do. He, he fired all the judges who were over 60. Now, he didn't do that because he was necessarily ageist. He did it so that he could bring in uh, new judges. At one point in uh, three, four years ago, he stormed Congress with the military. Uh, he sent the military in to get people to vote in a in a different way. He's on, on record as saying, as, as you, you said, you know, to people like us, he says, our country has changed in large part because we haven't paid any attention to these human rights organizations and the so-called international community. Now, of course, to a, to a nationalist populist audience, that is like gold dust. And he was, there was a very good report, I think, on the, on the BBC website where the BBC correspondent caught up with him at, at one of his events and, and, and he asked him about these people who, you know, surely amongst these tens of thousands of people in jail, there are going to be people there who, don't, who aren't affiliated to gangs at all. They just happen to be caught up in being swept up in old areas. And I'll just read you what Bukele said to him. I find it amusing when people say, oh, in El Salvador, they arrest people and some of the arrested are innocent. I'm baffled because I wonder if in the UK, all of the arrests are of guilty people, or if sometimes your police actually arrest innocent ones. So what he's doing is sort of seeding the idea that, you know, I'm just, I'm honest about this. Uh, this is, you know, I've decided this is my big priority. This is what I'm going to do. But your point, I think, is the thing for the second term. The economy isn't in a good state. And eventually, you know, that is where he has to start to deliver. But honestly, you see some of the interviews online with the people who are there who never used to support him. And they were waxing lyrical about this guy. There's also, I think, the other thing which often happens in these kind of regimes um, is, of course, corruption and his family. So his brothers are quite prominent. His cousins are quite prominent. There's a real sense that he's running a kind of clan-based government. And well, also, also, Roy, one of the first big things he did was, I think he's the first country in the world to make Bitcoin an official currency, along with the US dollar. Which has also made him a weird sort of celebrity in the Bitcoin world. Absolutely. So cryptocurrency people, and I, I know some cryptocurrency people who are actually quite authoritarian and both like the fact that he's embraced cryptocurrency, which incidentally is a very, very unstable thing to start mm. issuing bonds and debt. I mean, it, it lost, I think, 50% of its value in about the first three months after mm. he announced this. He also apparently is in, he owns a fair bit of it as well, he just said. Right. Senegal. Senegal. Okay, so <laughs> Senegal, we're now jumping to uh, coast of West Africa. And of course, one of the most important countries of Francophone West Africa, it, it connects to Mali and the Sahel, which is this region of the Sahara between North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, where this chain of military coups has happened. And so it's a place which has some of those structural features, climate, some of the ethnic dynamics, but was always perceived as being the stable mm. Democratic exception. Senegal is the only country, in fact, in mainland West Africa, which has never experienced a military coup had a series of peaceful transitions uh, of power. Um, it's particularly celebrated, I think, in the, um, the anti-colonial liberation movement because its, its first president was an extraordinary man called Leopold Senghor, who's a poet, a writer, a member of the Académie Française, uh, and, and, you know, sort of classic mm -hmm. French intellectual. And unfortunately, it's followed a trend that we've tracked around the world. We've often talked about the fact that 2014 is a, a tipping point uh, in the world in terms of relationship towards democracies. In 2014, two-thirds of the population of Senegal were satisfied with democracy. By 2022, less than 50% were. Mm, and it's, mm. it's in this context that things are happening. Over to you. So this is um, President, he sounds, sounds like a sort of Scottish football manager. He's called Mackie Sal. Um, <laughs> and perhaps you should have got the Aberdeen job instead of. Who got the Aberdeen job, Rory? <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid I haven't been following that. Mr. Neil Warnock. Rory, Neil please. Warnock, that is the first and last time Mr. Neil Warnock will be on this podcast. So he has, with literally with the, with weeks to go, the election was due to be on February the 25th, he has postponed the election. Um, now, we can think of all sorts of reasons why somebody might want to postpone election, but what would we put at top of the list, Rory? A fear that perhaps your chosen success from your party <laughs> might not win the next election. Correct. Because this is another one where he has done his two terms um, and that is the limit that he can 
stand, but he's obviously trying to get in place a successor. The courts have banned from running some of the people, confusingly one of them also called Sal, who might be expected to give them a run for their money. They've had to legislate to postpone the election. There was violence in the chamber. Um, The security forces went in and took out some of the opponent's to this move. It has now passed. He has given no clear date as to when the election will be. And as you say, this is a a country that has never had a coup, um, has managed to have peaceful transfers of power between different parties, and has never until now delayed an election. So it is quite tense. And even though this isn't maybe as bad as some of the things that have happened in other countries in that region, it sort of is part of the same pattern. Yeah, very, very worrying. Very worrying, because I think Experts on that region really thought Senegal was was the exception, the place mm. which you wouldn't be worrying about. In fact, it was Senegal that actually led the um, intervention uh, in the Gambia yeah. when when there was a, a military coup there to restore democracy. So um, worrying, um, but not as worrying as the sort of thing that we wanted to cover last, which is North Korea, mm. and 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 then we're moving into a very very different world. So we've talked about. Countries, um, you know, about the size of Wales, El Salvador, countries like Senegal, population is kind of 19 million. When you move into Korea, you're looking at a country, North and South Korea combined, it's about the same size as uh, the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. same length and breadth, similar sort of combined population, sort of up in the 70 million region, although two thirds of that is down in South Korea. And this extraordinary geographic position, again, just to remind people, Korea sticks off the edge of Manchuria. It's this huge, long peninsula stretching down with Japan on one side and and China on the other. And a country that is one of the most unified, homogenous countries on earth. It, 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 there's almost no country that you can think of in the world with which can be compared to Korea in terms of the fact that it has basically one ethnicity, one language in North and South and, and developed it very, very early on. It, mm. it, unlike so much of the rest of Asia, it isn't a place defined by numerous different identities, languages. So very homogenous, and then was split because of the Cold War. Totally artificially, like the splitting of East and West Germany, but even more so because it was a much more unified place than East and West Germany. And since then, this incredible divergence. So Korea started at the end of the Second World War as a very poor country, its GDP per capita would have been comparable to Senegal, what we've just been talking about. Fast forward to today, the GDP per capita of North Korea is now lower than Senegal. The GDP per capita of South Korea is now greater than that of the United Kingdom. So it's sort of shot. Uh, so mm. the average South Korean is, is now 25, 30 times wealthier than the average person in North Korea. Over to you. But the average North Korean, of course, doesn't necessarily know that because they have complete control over everything that they hear, see, and read. The reason why I thought this was a particularly important moment at which to discuss this is partly because um, there has been something of a rapprochement between North Korea and Russia, um, up to and including the provision of arms in relation to Ukraine. And there's been something of a, a rapprochement with China as well. And I think sometimes we look at Kim Jong-un, who is the third family member. Since 1948, they've only had three leaders, Kim Il-sung, then his son, Kim Jong-il, and now his grandson, Kim Jong-un. And what's been really interesting about recent developments is that in a speech, I think it was last month, Kim Jong-un has broken with the commitment that his predecessors had, which essentially was the the pursuit of Korean unification. Um, and he now is talking very, very clearly about the idea that the goal is no longer unity, essentially it's subjugation through war. And he talks about being at war. Now, it's possible to just say, well, this is just part of the sort of you know belligerence that we're used to seeing, but you have to put it alongside other things that are happening such as the continuing development of, of weapons that do have a far greater reach than the ones that he that he had before. Now, it could be he's just doing this to kind of strengthen himself domestically. It could be that he's just doing this to kind of get himself noticed. I think he's another leader who is a bit like Xi and a bit like Putin, is sort of waiting for Trump, hoping that Trump comes along because, of course, famously, Trump flattered him and had a meeting with him and eventually he turned against him because he didn't sort of do everything that he told him to. But he knows, he must surely know that if he does 
go to war, an all-out war, that if America's dragged into that, then North Korea's facing an existential threat. But he does have nuclear weapon development going on. And I think you, you've put your finger on it. And I think that one of the things we'll see is that deep, deep experts on North Korea are completely divided about which one of those two scenarios is right. So as you say, one version is, yes, of course, he's being belligerent, but don't worry about it too much. The North Koreans are often belligerent. There's a strong pattern over many, many decades, they're making aggressive comments. And in the end, they do it in the run-up to US elections so that they did you know, nuclear tests in 2016 and 2012, yeah. they fired long-range missiles. And that it's designed just to try to drive the US and South Korea to the negotiating table and get the concessions that he wants, which is the lifting of sanctions. And in his dreams, the withdrawal of US military from Korea, there's still 25,000 American soldiers mm -hmm. in Korea. But the other view, which is coming from some other very serious scholars of North Korea is no, 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 this time it's very different. And we haven't heard this type of language before. And it's much, much more dangerous. Um, there's a big paper written by two of these experts, Carlin and Hecker, saying this is the most dangerous that they've really seen it since the 1950s. Is this the one of those guys works for or worked for the State Department, and and they are both exactly. clear. They're both clear that he's they think he has made a strategic decision that he will end up at war with with South Korea. Exactly, that's that's right. One of them's a former State Department official, and their their story is that. He's absolutely lost it with any belief that there's any possibility of concessions, that Trump was his last spin of the dice, didn't work out. He doesn't believe any longer that he's going to be able to get sanctions lifted. He lives in a very isolated, paranoid world. I mean, this was one of the things that was, of course, very important about Putin and that weird COVID isolation over two years where his nationalism kind of deepened and mm. became more and more mad. And that we should be very worried and that actually we've been too complacent about the idea that he's so frightened of an American retaliation, he'd never do anything. That sort of sustained us for a long time, but he may be losing his patience now. Mm. And, and I think the final thing is that we've been wrong about North Korea so often. I mean, we've been predicting its collapse since the 1980s. And understandably, I mean, it's so poor, so brutal. There are huge problems within the regime. There are even more rounding up of political enemies and killing them happening now than there have been for the last few years. There seems to be a much more serious famine on its way, you know, the sort of famine they haven't seen for 20 years. So all of that makes you think that if you're betting in the long term, you'd think that North Korea is going to collapse. But that hasn't happened. And again and again, people have been proved wrong. And and so I, I think that the, the risk is that the sort of crying wolf risk that we've become so exhausted by his threats and talks about nuclear weapons that people just ignore him, whereas this time it might be for real. Yeah, you, and you said that the population of the two Koreas combined is roughly this, that of the UK and, and North Korea is a third. And yet they have the fourth biggest army in the world. You have America, China and India, and then North Korea, over a million soldiers. We said last week we can fit the UK army now into a one of our bigger football stadiums. And the other big change that he made in his recent speech was this, the, the, the fact of saying that he no longer accepted the maritime border between North and South. Now, that was drawn up by the United Nations at the end of the Korean War. And he has now said that is not a, a legal uh, border and that he asserts all territorial claims in that area. Now, if you go for the saber-rattling assessment, then South Korean ships think, oh, well, that's just him sort of sounding off. We'll just carry on as normal. But if you go for the, he's actually into a different stage and a different strategy, then who knows what happens? And if he if were to attack ships, who knows where that would lead to? So I agree with you. I think it's um, without wanting to make people even more paranoid about the state of the world right now, I think we should stop thinking about Kim Jong-un as that sort of big, fat, jolly chap that we see coming on the telly every now and again, usually sitting in a big black armchair in, a, in what looks like a desert, watching missiles fire off into the sky, or these amazing parades where children come out and women are weeping at the sight of him and, and all that stuff. It, it's easy to look at him as a bit of a joke figure, but I would say he's right up there now as one of the key members of the Global Dictators Club. And... China, of course, is the key to this. I mean, China's what keeps North Korea alive. If anybody has leverage over North Korea, it's China. Um, 
you know, we, we've talked about this in relation to Myanmar as well. I mean, it, 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 it reminds you of just how much, even this sort of brief conversation we've had today, how much is on the desk of somebody like Biden trying to deal oh, with yeah. the world. Oh, and yeah. the sort of bandwidth you need to try to, you know, there will be people in his Africa section saying we've got to get on and pass messages to Senegal. There'll be mm. people worried about the state of democracy in Central America. There will be people worried about nuclear mm. weapons in North Korea. And we haven't even talked about the Middle East, where, and we haven't talked about Ukraine, where you now have this incredible situation where the Republican Party, directed by Trump, essentially are putting Biden's entire Ukraine strategy at risk because they want him to fail in it. And that's before we, you know, this is obviously called the rest is politics. And that's before you get onto the domestic politics and the way that affects the stuff. I was reading the Wall Street Journal this morning and all the comment pages, the op-eds are making the argument that Biden is weak on Iran you know, because these three American soldiers were killed. There are these big op-eds saying he's going to be brought down like Jimmy Carter by inflation in Iran. It's going to be just the same. And, and the story is all about presidential weakness. And that's very dangerous because that, of course, is one of the things that drove LBJ to lean into the Vietnam War is the sense that his domestic program was going to unravel because the Republicans were accusing him of being soft. Mm. Um, so that's very dangerous. I mean, I think almost more than the calculations. And you know, since we spoke last, the US has done, I think, 82 strikes against Iranian-backed militia groups. But there's now been another attack, another drone attack yesterday against US bases, which will encourage more responses. And more dangerous than the facts on the ground is going to be this question of US politics getting into an election. Well, there we are. We started off on a reasonably upbeat note in Northern Ireland. and We've ended up on a fairly downbeat note in North Korea. Well, let, let, me, let me take up your invitation to finish this on an upbeat note. So Northern Ireland is remarkable because there were so many reasons to be gloomy, so many reasons to think that the big political leaders would never sign up, so many reasons to think the British government would be too distracted and not serious enough to focus. And instead, what we found is actually the British government has done a pretty good job. The Northern Ireland Secretary stuck with it. But more than that, much more important, much more exciting is a new leadership from Sinn Féin and the DUP showing they're prepared to work together, a much more positive creative language. It's not the kind of populism that we've been worrying about on this show so far. It's a sign of leadership going in a positive, optimistic direction. So there's still hope for the world. Excellent. If I can, I can add to this sense of, of uplifting mood music around politics, my favorite event of the week has been the revelation that Donald Trump is terrified of Taylor Swift. <laughs> Very good. Well done, Taylor Swift. And a goodbye from me. Bye-bye.